Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't expect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes and, yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my hope with our weekly almanac to give to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick, easy-to-digest installments. Perfect for a sit in your favorite chair or a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little lesson that you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, stories, and personalities shared in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together... Let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My beloved Junto, how do you think, as you're listening to these words, in this distinct moment, how are they stacking up inside the vaulted chambers of your mind to become discernible? How are these idle sounds being shaped into sentences, clauses, language, structure, sentiments, emotion? If one thinks about it too long, we begin to grow overwhelmed at the subtle miracle that is human consciousness and a divine spark that has made man view themselves the exclusive over any other animal in the theater of creation. In my time, men spent the whole of their careers trying to encapsulate human thought, writing essays on systems of logic, reason, wrapping up immortal sentiments that cast their very being in their capacity to think. Cogito ergo sum, I think. Therefore, you know it. Today's episode is going to be about an attempt I made in my youth to add to the canon of dissertations upon matters cognitive and matters divine. I'll later view it as one of the greater erratas or errors of my life, but I do believe it's worth a share for today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about God, existence, and where we fall in between the two. In my 19th year of age, I worked as a journeyman printer at a press in Bartholomew's Close in London, run by a capable yet humble man by the name of Samuel Palmer. One of the items we worked at the press that season was the third edition of The Religion of Nature Delineated by William Wollaston, not appearing well-founded in its arguments, uh, being then imbued with the confidence of youth. I turned my attention to writing a little metaphysical piece to refute it. It was my desire to prove the doctrine of fate from the supposed attributes of God in some such manner as this, that in creating and governing the world, as he was infinitely wise, he knew what would be best, infinitely good, 
He must be disposed and infinitely powerful. He must be able to execute it. Consequently, all is right. The work, as I said, I would consider an error later in life. I would send and address all of this to a friend by the name of James Ralph, a literary friend and travel companion whose friendship I would sever in a profound way during our time abroad. Another error of my life, worth mentioning, just not here. And so, dear listener, without further ado, I give you, for today's installment, a dissertation on liberty and necessity. Sir, I have here, according to your request, given you my present thoughts of the general state of things in the universe. Such as they are, you have them, and are welcome to them, and if they yield you any pleasure or satisfaction, I shall think my trouble sufficiently compensated. I know my scheme will be liable to many objections from a less discerning reader than yourself, but it is not designed for those who can't understand it. I need not give you any caution to distinguish the hypothetical parts of the argument from the conclusive. You will easily perceive what I design for demonstration, and what for probability only. The whole I leave entirely to you, and shall value myself more or less on this account in proportion to your esteem and approbation. Section 1 of Liberty and Necessity 1. There is said to be a first mover who is called God, maker of the universe. 2. He is said to be all-wise, all-good, all-powerful. These two propositions, being allowed and asserted by people of almost every sect and opinion, I have here supposed them granted, and laid them down as the foundation of my argument, what follows then, being a chain of consequences truly drawn from them, will stand or fall as they are true or false. 3. If he is all good, whatsoever he doeth must be good. For, if he is all wise, whatsoever he doeth must be wise. The truth of these propositions, with relation to the two first, I think may be justly called evident, since either that infinite goodness will act what is ill, or infinite wisdom what is not wise is too glaring a contradiction not to be perceived by any man of common sense, and denied as soon as understood. 5. If he is all-powerful, there can be nothing either existing or acting in the universe against or without his consent, and what he consents to must be good, because he is good. Therefore, evil doth not exist. Unde malum, where does evil come from? has been long a question, and many of the learned have perplexed themselves and readers to little purpose in answer to it, that there are both things and actions to which we give the name of evil, is not here denied, as pain, sickness, want, theft, murder, etc., but that these and the like are not in reality evils, ills, or defects in the order of the universe." is demonstrated in the next section, as well as by this and the following proposition. Indeed, to suppose anything to exist or be done contrary to the will of the Almighty is to suppose him not Almighty, or that something, the cause of evil, is more mighty than the Almighty, an inconsistence that I think no one will defend. 
and to deny anything or action which he consents to the existence of to be good is entirely to destroy his two attributes of wisdom and goodness. There is nothing in the universe, say the philosophers, but what God either does or permits to be done. This, as he is almighty, is certainly true. But what need of this distinction between doing and permitting? Why, first they take it for granted that many things in the universe exist in such a manner as is not for the best, and that many actions are done which ought not to be done, or would be better undone. These things or actions they cannot ascribe to God as his because they have already attributed to him infinite wisdom and goodness. Here, then, is the use of the word permit. He permits them to be done, say they. But we will reason thus. If God permits an action to be done, it is because he wants either power or inclination to hinder it. In saying he wants power, we deny him to be almighty. And if we say he wants inclination or will, it must be either because he is not good, or the action is not evil, for all evil is contrary to the essence of infinite goodness. The former is inconsistent with his before, given attribute of goodness. Therefore, the latter must be true. It will be said, perhaps, that God permits evil actions to be done for wise ends and purposes, but this objection destroys itself, for whatever an infinitely good God hath wise ends in suffering to be, must be good, is thereby made good, and cannot be otherwise. 6. If a creature is made by God, it must depend upon God, and receive all its power from him, which with power the creature can do nothing contrary to the will of God because God is almighty. What is not contrary to his will must be agreeable to it. What is agreeable to it must be good, because he is good. Therefore, a creature can do nothing but what is good. This proposition is much the same as purpose with the former, but more particular, and its conclusion is as just and evident. Though a creature may do many actions which by his fellow creatures will be named evil, and which will naturally and necessarily cause or bring up the doer certain pains, which will likewise be called punishments. Yet this proposition proves that he cannot act what will be in itself really ill or displeasing to God, and that the painful consequences of his evil actions, so-called, are not, as indeed they ought not to be, punishments or unhappiness, will be shown hereafter. Nevertheless, the late learned author of the religion of nature, which I send you herewith, has given us a rule or scheme whereby to discover which our actions ought to be esteemed and denominated good, and which evil, whereby to discover which our actions ought to be esteemed and denominated good, and which evil. It is in short this, every action which is done according to truth is good and every action contrary to truth is evil. To act according to truth is to use and esteem everything as what it is, etc. Thus, if A steals a horse from B and rides away upon him, he uses him not as what he is in truth, viz. the property of another, but as his own, which is contrary to truth, and therefore evil. But, as this gentleman himself says, 
In order to judge rightly what anything is, it must be considered not only what it is in one respect, but also what it may be in any other respect. And the whole description of the thing ought to be taken in. So, in this case, it ought to be considered that A is naturally a covetous being, feeling an uneasiness in the want of B's horse, which produces an inclination for stealing him, stronger than his fear of punishment for so doing. This is truth, likewise. And A acts according to it when he steals the horse. Besides, if it is proved to be a truth that A has not power over his actions, it will be indisputable that he acts according to truth, and impossible he should do otherwise. I would not be otherwise by this to encourage or defend theft. It is only for the sake of the argument, and will certainly have no ill effect. The order and course of things will not be affected by reasoning of this kind, and tis as just and necessary, and as much according to truth, for B to dislike and punish the theft of his horse, as it is for A to steal him. 7. If the creature is thus limited in his actions, being able to do only such things as God would have him do, and not being able to refuse doing what God would have done, then he can have no such thing as liberty free will, or power to do or refrain in action. By liberty is sometimes understood the absence of opposition, and in this sense, indeed, all our actions may be said to be the effects of our liberty. But it is a liberty of the same nature with the fall of a heavy body to the ground. It has liberty to fall, that is, it meets with nothing to hinder its fall but at the same time it is necessitated to fall, and has no power or liberty to remain suspended. But let us take the argument in another view, and suppose ourselves to be, in the common sense of the word, free agents, as man is a part of this great machine, the universe, his regular acting, is requisite to the regular moving of the whole. Among the many things which lie before him to be done, he may, as he is at liberty, and his choice influenced by nothing, for so it must be, or he is not at liberty, choose any one, and refuse the rest. Now there is every moment something best to be done, which is alone, then good, and with respect to which everything else is at that time evil. In order to know which is best to be done and which not, it is requisite that we should have at one view all the intricate consequences of every action with respect to the general order and scheme of the universe, both present and future. But they are innumerable and incomprehensible by anything but omniscience. As we cannot know these, we have but as one chance to ten thousand to hit on the right action. We should then be perpetually blundering about in the dark, and putting the scheme in disorder. For every wrong action of a part is a defect or blemish in the order of the whole. Is it not necessary, then, that our actions should be overruled and governed by an all-wise providence? How exact and regular is everything in the natural world! How wisely in every part contrived! We cannot here find the least defect." Those who have studied the mere animal and vegetable creation demonstrate that nothing can be more harmonious and beautiful. All the heavenly bodies, the stars and planets, are regulated with the utmost wisdom. And can we suppose less care to be taken in the order of the moral than in the natural system? 
It is as if an ingenious artificer, having framed a curious machine or clock and put its many intricate wheels and powers in such a dependence on one another that the whole might move in the most exact order and regularity, had nevertheless placed in it several other wheels endued with an independent self-motion, but ignorant of the general interest of the clock, and these would every now and then be moving wrong, disordering the true movement and making continual work for the mender which might better be prevented by depriving them of that power of self-motion and placing them in a dependence on the regular part of the clock. 8. If there is no such thing as free will in creatures, there can be neither merit nor demerit in creatures. 9. And therefore every creature must be equally esteemed by the Creator. These propositions appear to be the necessary consequences of the former, and certainly no reason can be given why the Creator should prefer in his esteem one part of his works to another, if with equal wisdom and goodness he designed and created them all, since all ill or defect, as contrary to his nature, is excluded by his power. Now we will sum up the argument thus. When the Creator first designed the universe, either it was his will and intention that all things should exist and be in the manner they are at this time, or it was his will they should be otherwise, i.e., in a different manner. To say it was his will things should be otherwise than they are, is to say somewhat hath contradicted his will and broken his measures, which is impossible, because inconsistent with his power. Therefore we must allow that all things exist now in a manner agreeable to his will, and in consequence of that are all equally good, and therefore equally esteemed by him. I proceed now to show that as all the works of the Creator are equally esteemed by him, so they are, as in justice they ought to be, equally used. Section 2. Of Pleasure and Pain. 1. When a creature is formed and imbued with life, tis supposed to receive a capacity of the sensation of uneasiness or pain. It is this distinguishes life and consciousness from unactive unconscious matter. To know or be sensible of suffering, or being acted upon, is to live, and whatsoever is not so among created things is properly and truly dead. All pain and uneasiness proceeds at first from and is caused by somewhat without and distinct from the mind itself. The soul must first be acted upon before it can react. It is as if it were not. It is not conscious of its own existence, till it has received the first sensation of pain. Then, and not before, it begins to feel itself, is roused and put into action. Then it discovers its powers and faculties, and exerts them to expel the uneasiness. Thus is the machine set on work. This is life. We are first moved by pain and the whole succeeding course of our lives is but one continued series of actions with a view to be freed from it. As fast as we have excluded one uneasiness, another appears. Otherwise, the motion would cease. If a continual weight is not applied, the clock will stop. And as soon as the avenues of uneasiness to the soul are choked up or cut off, we are dead, we think, and act no more. 2. 
This uneasiness, whenever felt, produces desire to be freed from it. Great in exact proportion to the uneasiness. Thus is uneasiness the first spring and cause of all actions. For till we are uneasy in rest, we can have no desire to move. And without desire of moving, there can be no voluntary motion. For till we are uneasy in rest, we can have no desire to move. And without desire of moving, there can be no voluntary motion. The experience of every man who has observed his own actions will evince the truth of this. And I think nothing need be said to prove that the desire will be equal to the uneasiness. For the very thing implies as much. It is not uneasiness unless we desire to be freed from it, nor a great uneasiness unless the consequent desire is great. I might here observe how necessary a thing in the order and design of the universe this pain or uneasiness is, and how beautiful in its place. Let us but suppose it just now banished the world entirely, and consider the consequence of it. All the animals, creation would immediately stand stock still, exactly in the posture they were in the moment uneasiness departed, not a limb. Not a finger would henceforth move. We should all be reduced to the condition of statues, dull and unactive. Here I should continue to sit motionless with the pen in my hand thus, and neither leave my seat nor write one letter more. This may appear odd at first view, but a little consideration will make it evident. For tis impossible to assign any other cause for the voluntary motion of an animal than its uneasiness in rest. What a different appearance, then, would the face of nature make without it? How necessary is it? And how unlikely that the inhabitants of the world ever were, or that the creation ever designed they should be, exempt from it? I would likewise observe here that the eighth proposition in the preceding section, viz., that there is neither merit nor demerit, etc., is here again demonstrated, as infallibly, though in another manner. For since freedom from uneasiness is the end of all our actions, how is it possible for us to do anything disinterested? How can any action be meritorious of praise or dispraise, when the natural principle of self-love is the only and irresistible motive to it? 3. This desire is always fulfilled or satisfied. In the design or end of it, though not in the manner, the first is requisite, the latter not. To exemplify this, let us make a supposition. A person is confined in a house which appears to be in imminent danger of falling. This, as soon as perceived, creates a violent uneasiness, and that instantly produces an equal strong desire, the end of which is freedom from the uneasiness, and the manner or way proposed to gain this end is to get out of the house. Now, if he is convinced by any means that he is mistaken and the house is not likely to fall, he is immediately freed from his uneasiness, and in the end of his desire is attained as well as if it had been in the manner desired, viz. leaving the house. All our different desires and passions proceed from and are reducible to this one point, uneasiness, though the means we propose to ourselves for expelling of it are infinite. One proposes fame, another wealth, a third power, etc., as the means to gain this end. But though these are never attained, if the uneasiness be removed by some other means, the desire is satisfied, 
Now, during the course of life, we are ourselves continually removing success, uneasiness as they arise, and the last we suffer is removed by the sweet sleep of death. For the fulfilling or satisfaction of this desire produces the sensation of pleasure, great or small, in exact proportion to the desire. Pleasure is that satisfaction which arises in the mind upon and is caused by the accomplishment of our desires, and by no other means at all, and those desires being above shown to be caused by our pains or uneasiness. It follows that pleasure is wholly caused by pain, and by no other thing at all. 5. Therefore the sensation of pleasure is equal or in exact proportion to the sensation of pain. As the desire of being freed from uneasiness is equal to the uneasiness and the pleasure of satisfying that desire equal to the desire, the pleasure thereby produced must necessarily be equal to the uneasiness or pain which produces it. I shall here subjoin a short recapitulation of the whole, that it may with all parts be comprehended at one view, as well as an abridgment of what remains. One, it is supposed that God, the maker and the governor of the universe, is infinitely wise, good, and powerful. Two, in consequence of his infinite wisdom and goodness, it is asserted that whatever he doeth must be infinitely wise and good. Three, unless he be interrupted and his measures broken by some other being, which is impossible, because he is almighty. 4. In consequence of his infinite power, it is asserted that nothing can exist or be done in the universe which is not agreeable to his will, and therefore good. 5. Evil is hereby excluded, with all merit and demerit, and likewise all preference in the esteem of God, of one part of the creation to another. This is the summary of the first part. Now our common notions of justice will tell us that if all created things are equally esteemed by the Creator, they ought to be equally used by Him, and that they are therefore equally used we might embrace for truth upon the credit, and as the true consequence of the foregoing argument. Nevertheless, we proceed to confirm it by showing how they are equally used, and that in the following manner. 1. A creature, when imbued with life or consciousness, is made capable of uneasiness or pain. 2. This pain produces desire to be freed from it, in exact proportion to itself. 3. The accomplishments of this desire produces an equal pleasure. 4. Pleasure is consequently equal to pain. From these proportions it is observed. 1. That every creature hath as much pleasure as pain. 2. That life is not preferable to insensibility, for pleasure and pain destroy one another. That being which has ten degrees of pain subtracted from ten of pleasure has nothing remaining, and is upon an equality with that being which is insensible to both. 3. As the first part proves that all things must be equally used by the Creator because equally esteemed, so this second part demonstrates that they are equally esteemed because they are equally used. 4. Since every action is the effect of self-uneasiness, the distinction of virtue and vice is excluded. 5. No state of life can be happier than the present, because pleasure and pain are inseparable. Thus, both parts of this argument agree with and confirm one another, and the demonstration is reciprocal. I am sensible that the doctrine here advanced, if it were to be published, would meet with but an indifferent reception. Mankind naturally and generally love to be flattered. 
Whatever soothes our pride and tends to exalt our species above the rest of creation, we are pleased with, and easily believe when ungrateful truths shall be with the utmost indignation rejected, what, bring ourselves down to the equality with the beasts of the field, with the meanest parts of creation, tis insufferable. But, to use a piece of common sense, our geese are but geese, though we make them swans. And truth will be truth, though it sometimes proves mortifying and distasteful. Now, my beloved Junto, that was a fairly dense dissertation. I do hope you followed along the journey, although I confess I, I do not know at times if I did. But I do think we can find a, a lesson that can give great comfort, particularly as we round towards the end of our season. My dear friends, we move in seasons in our lives. And through those seasons, we pursue our wants, our aims, our ends, and our pleasures, all while endeavoring to avoid pain, discomfort, suffering. Now perhaps, my friends, you find yourself in a particular season where those wounds, the uneasiness, the suffering exists in greater quantity than the pleasures that you find yourself pursuing. Well, if we're to accept the ideas of this particular dissertation, and I'm not insinuating that you should, if you find yourself in a season of uneasiness, if you find yourself suffering, trust in the goodness of the universe. Trust that for every degree of suffering you find yourself in, in this moment, that a moment very soon, sooner probably than you think, you shall find equal degrees of pleasure. All things balance out. All things pass. All pain will eventually become pleasure. Now that's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section of bfranklinlive.com. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at bfranklinlive, and Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind on Facebook. Love the wit and wisdom of Let's Be Frank? Consider supporting our Junto by joining our Patreon today. You can find the link to it in today's show notes. And, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listener, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you're best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. 